chapter 20, and uh, I want to begin reading in verse number 19, and, and then down to verse 24. From John chapter 20, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were they glad, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. There were 12 disciples, and uh, by the way, I want, to, I want to talk to you tonight, this morning on this title, Believing is Seen. There were 12 disciples, one was dead by suicide already, by, by this point at least, one was missing, we don't know where he's at, uh, but it's interesting that Thomas is kind of given uh, the, the nickname of Doubting Thomas. And so that kind of casts light on his lack of courage and his faith. But who was hiding and who was not hiding at this point at least? It wasn't Thomas that was hiding. It was the ten that were hiding. Um, but so one was dead by suicide. One was missing and the ten disciples were hiding in fear. All of them were in desperate need of a miracle. And little did they know that their miracle was getting ready to literally walk through that door. Walk through <laughs> that door. And as I said, Thomas gets kind of a bad rap for not believing. But, but even the ten to whom Jesus first appeared did not believe when they first saw him. Now you say, how do we know that? Well, look at the text. Verse 20. And when he had so said, Jesus showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So first he appears to him, and, and then he shows them his hands and his side. Why would he do that for? Because they doubted. When were they glad? When they saw the Lord. But when did they recognize him as the Lord? When he had showed them his hands and his side. There was a privilege that was afforded the ten that Thomas didn't exactly get. And that was obviously because he was gone. But the privilege was to see the nail scars in his hand and in his pierced side. Now when you look at the words of Thomas, they just simply told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And that's, you know, the Bible doesn't give us the full breadth of the conversation. But Without question, they would have told him, we saw the Lord. Thomas would have said, well, how do you know it was the Lord? And then they would have said, well, because he showed us his hands and his side. Nobody else is going to have the mark of that redemption, the price paid for redemption but him. So Thomas said, except I will see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas took it a step further. The disciples didn't get to touch that as far as we know at least. But Thomas said, I don't just want to see it, but I want to touch it. I want to put my hand into the print of the nails and feel that scar in his side. 
You see, Thomas only wanted to see and experience what the other ten got to also see and experience. And that was evidence of the resurrection of the Lord. But look at what happens next in verse 26. And after eight days, Jesus, sorry, after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither your finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be no more faithless but believing. And Thomas immediately falls to his knees and says, My Lord and my God. And in the Greek, that would have been my Jehovah and my Elohim. He recognized him as the sovereign God because nobody else but those ten disciples or but those ten disciples would have heard the words that Thomas said to the disciples eight days earlier. This is what I want to do before I believe that he's resurrected and he's living. But it was eight days later. And that's often something that we don't normally contemplate and really think about. But eight days later, that means for eight days, Thomas did not believe that Jesus was resurrected. Now, they were already sad because they saw him die. But there is no question in my mind that this took their sad, this took his sadness to a whole new level. Because for eight days, he was living in doubt, in fear, and wrestling with anxiety. And I know that fear and doubt are horrible tormentors. None are so miserable as those that are without faith. Or those that are in a, in a faith crisis where they struggle with faith. Because when doubt fills you up and you're not, when you're filled with faith, everything, every fruit of the spirit that flows out of faith is also available to you. Out of faith comes love and joy and peace and gentleness, long-suffering, meekness. You're filled with all the fullness of God when you have faith. But when you have doubt, you're filled with the opposite. Doubt will steal your joy. It'll steal your peace. It'll steal your peace of mind and calmness in your soul. It'll make you worry, as Pastor alluded to, about what happens next. It'll fill you with anxiety. But Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas was slow to believe because he needed to see first. And although Jesus did show himself specifically to Thomas, the greater eyesight lays not with those who see the evidence first, but with those who believe their miracle first. With those who do not need any evidence of their miracle other than simply what God has said. You might ask, why is that true? And it's because if you require your evidence first, then it's not faith. You're just simply trusting your senses. And that is absolutely not faith. That's just logic. If I said there's a pink elephant in the room, and you would perhaps look for a pink elephant. When you don't find one, you would say there's no, there's no pink elephant in the room. That's, that's, it would be nonsense to believe that there's a pink elephant in the room if there's not a pink elephant in the room. But if God says there's one, and you look around and you don't see one, to our senses it makes no sense. But when God says it, it's always true. Now sometimes it takes a while for science to catch up to what God has said. But when God says it, it's either happened or it's getting ready to happen. 
or there's a determinate future. When God said, I know this is a stupid example, but, it, but, it's, but it's absolutely true. And this is how faith works. Whenever God said there's a pink elephant in the room, we look around and say, well, there's no pink elephant in the room. God must have lied. Well, God calls those things that be not as though they were. God sees our life on a timeline. We see the here and right now, and we're stuck in the weeds. Sometimes, most of the time, we can't even understand what's happening in the present. We can only partially understand because we don't see from a high level. But God sees things from above, and he sees our life on a timeline. He sees we're right here. He sees what's in front of us. He sees behind us. He sees everything, and he sees it all at once. So when God says there's a pink elephant in the room, he might be looking 10 years from now and saying there's a pink elephant in the room. And all we have to say is yay and amen. Because all the promises of God in him are yay and amen. It's going to happen. God tells an 80-year-old woman you're going to have a baby. Guess what? She's going to have a baby at 90 years old. That's how faith works. But we got to learn not to trust what we see and what we hear. From Luke chapter 24, it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three furlongs long. Three score furlongs long. And they walked together, they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Jesus withdrew himself, drew near. And went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said to them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them said, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass therein these days? This is Jesus. Don't you know what's been happening? Oh, no, he has no idea what's been happening. <laughs> Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? Don't you love this conversation? <laughs> and they said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, and word before God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be determined to death, condemned to death, and have crucified him. Can you hear the panic in their voice? But we trusted, now here comes disappointment and doubt. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. It's been three days. There's no miracle that's going to happen now. God's not going to do that. Nobody ever was rose from the dead after three days, except for Lazarus. He was four. But other than that, as far as I can tell, nobody ever was, was rose from that three days. Now, the question has often been asked, who were these two disciples? Now, my answer may not be completely right. But here's, here's what I think. One we know for sure was Cleopas. We know that because the Bible identifies him as Cleopas. Now, when you reference another place in the Bible that references Cleopas, you find him in John 19 and 25. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there was four women that stood by his cross. There was his mother, his aunt, his, uh, there was Mary, the wife of who? Cleopas. And Mary Magdalene. So there were four women. So Mary was the wife of Cleopas, and I believe that it was these two who were on the road to Emmaus with the risen Savior. So I think those were the two disciples. Now this is important because if that's true, then they hadn't just become disciples. They were close enough at least 
to be there at the foot of the cross as he was being crucified. They were not, as we used to say, newbies. They had, it, they had followed him long enough for Mary, his wife, to be at his feet, at the feet of the Lord as he was crucified and as he died. If she was wearing the same change of clothes, you know, because in those times they didn't have many changes of clothes, but if, if she was wearing those same chains of clothes as she had three days earlier, she probably still had blood splatter on her clothes from the cross. The memory of the whipping post was still fresh in, in both of their minds, especially in her mind, as the flesh, that cat of nine tails, would have torn the flesh from his back. As he fell underneath the load of that cross, that splintery cross that they put on top of his already beaten and bloodied back, and Simon, a Cyrenian, passing by, coming out of the country, was compelled to pick up his cross and carry it the rest of the way. And the Bible says, and they bring him, him meaning Jesus, to a place called Golgotha, meaning they had to physically pick Jesus up and physically bring him to that place because he was already too physically exhausted at that point even to walk. All of this was fresh in their minds. And without a doubt, it impacted their vision. Doubt and fear and anxiety and disappointment filled up their minds. Now, I'm sure that none of you have ever been to that, in that place. I'm sure that I'm probably the only one who's ever been in a place like that. Where sometimes we need to be reminded, like Pastor reminded us this morning, you don't got to figure it all out, you just got to follow me. You just got to take one step at a time as God leads it. And don't worry about the rest. Sometimes we try to walk ahead of God, sometimes we lag behind Him. He said, walk with me. Walk by my side. Take my hand, follow in my footsteps. But then Jesus said this to them in verse 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus chided them, not for their lack of logic, not for their scientific minds and abilities to figure out where they were at because logic was what put them in this prison of doubt and disappointment and fear to begin with. But he chided them for their heart condition that produced a lack of faith. Oh, fools, and not slow of faith, but slow of what? Heart. Lacking faith is always a heart condition. Slow of heart. And their lack of faith clouded them from receiving revelation from the scriptures as to how the Messiah would be raised from the dead. If they believed, they would have saw and understood the revelation that it was God walking with them in a resurrected body, crucified and risen from the dead and having the keys of hell and death. Literally, there was such a great miracle that was walking before them. And you know what? Sometimes the miracle is right before us, but we're not seeing it because we're too slow of heart. You know, God says, this is going to happen, and we look around, we don't see how it's going to happen, so we just take that word, and we just chuck it right over our shoulders, and we forget all about it. But what did Mary, the mother of the Lord, do when the angel Gabriel gave her that word? His name will be called Yeshua, which means salvation in the Hebrew, for he will save his people from their sins. Where did she put that word? 
She, she put it all in her heart. She tucked it away. And that's what you have to do to words in difficult seasons. you got to tuck it away in your heart because the enemy can steal it when it's on your shoulder. He can steal it when it's on the ground, but he can't steal it from your heart. From your spirit, you got to put it deep inside of there. Fear and doubt will keep us in the dark. It will keep us away from revelatory wisdom and understanding that will fill our hearts with joy and peace and make the waiting room much more tendable. Instead of believing what God says, we are slow to believe what he's already written in his word. When we, when, whenever bad things happen to us, we look around for a prophet or a pastor or some mentor to give us an audible word from God when God has already given us a contracted word that's written down in his word and sealed by his blood in his name. But believing is seeing. If you believe, your eyes and heart will follow. If you have faith, we used to say, you know, you know, sometimes whenever you're preaching and you don't feel much unction, Brother Dumeresk at Gateway years ago taught us, you know, he said some people try to fake it. He said this is times where you got to faith it. You don't fake it, you faith it. In other words, you get out there and you scream and shout with everything you have or you communicate with as much wisdom and revelation as, as God has given. You may not feel anything, but eventually it's going to come because the word is anointed. And sometimes you got to faith it. But I don't feel anything. I don't see anything changing. It doesn't matter. I'm faithing it right now. God said it, and I believe it. He said, I'm your healer. I believe that he's my healer. If I go to my grave and I die of that, eventually this body's going to get up out of that grave, and he's going to fulfill his word. Hallelujah. Revelation and even the ability to hear from God is nearly always impacted by our faith. But whenever we're faced with giants, what's really at stake is not our health or our finances. What's really at stake is our faith. And here's why. Because you have dominion over everything that does not steal your faith. If it doesn't steal your faith, you have dominion over it. Because when it steals your faith, now it has dominion over you and you become its slave. You're filled with doubt. You're in a prison of fear. An entire generation missed the first coming of the Lord because they were slow to believe. And, and who is it that got one of the first revelations that the Lord had came, that Messiah was born in Bethlehem? It was not his own people that were seen. I mean, it was Mary, of course, was the first one. But one of the first people were wise men. And where do they come from? The east. And it would, have took, it would have taken them two to three, maybe longer, a year so, to, to, to get to that place. So they saw his star, which would have happened on the day he was born. Jesus would have been probably two to four years old, just a toddler, by the time they got there. But they, they persisted, and they were looking for the sign of his coming when God's own people were not. And sometimes the world, in this regard, is wiser than God's own people. But we ought to be awake and on our toes because I will tell you, just as a side note, Jesus is coming soon, y'all. Yes. And if you're not ready, if you're not prayed up and filled out with the Spirit, then you better, you better get it quickly because there is a spirit of the Antichrist that is rising up in this world faster than you've ever seen it in your life. And it is happening in our day. 
but believing is seeing. We, when we want proof, instead of accepting what God has said, we are slow of heart and we lack faith. This kept an entire generation of Israel wandering around in the desert for 38 more years. I said it before, and I'll say it again, nothing is hard for God. We say nothing is too hard for God, and that's true, that's in the Bible. But we say nothing is hard for God, and that's true, of course, but it is hard for our faith. At least some things are. Because some things are hard and difficult lift for us and for our faith. But they're never hard for God. God's just waiting for us to catch up. There are seasons where God will put you in and give you a word in advance and then allow circumstances to go in the opposite direction of what God said he would do. And it's in those times that all you can do is wait and believe and have faith. And wait and believe and have faith. And as, again, as passion, follow the leading of the Spirit of God in that season. But it's during these difficult seasons where our faith is really built up. You will have moments and even days of doubt. You will have days where, where you're on top of the world and you've got all the faith. You've got the faith of Moses and Elijah and Daniel all put together. Or it feels like it. And then you'll have days where you want to crawl underneath the rock like a, like a little bug and say, just Son, don't shine on me. Just forget about me. God doesn't know where I'm at. Nobody knows who I am. I'm just going to go eat some worms. And those are days where your faith is really growing. You may not realize it, but remember this, that God sees the growth of the seed. We don't know how much the seed has grown until it pops up out of the earth. But when the seed is buried and earth is put over it, only God can see it at that point. And that seed struggles the most to get up out of that earth, to push past whatever it is that's pushing past rock, sometimes concrete, sometimes weeds and other things. It pushes past up that. And that's how our faith grows. And that's why Jesus said all it takes is faith like a seed. And Jesus said mustard seed, but that would have been the smallest seed that would have been available to him at that point. That small seed has great potential. And Satan knows the potential that you have, so he tries to destroy the seed. But the only way for the seed to grow is if it's hidden away in your heart. Amen. So you have moments of doubt. As we cling and hold to God's word while the enemy tries to steal our faith, you must guard that word God gave you or the devil will take it away. Because that word gives you strength to endure the season. Look at 1 Kings chapter 17. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens, everybody say ravens. ravens. The ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank of the brook. Ravens. Elijah hated ravens. How do you know that? I'm so glad you asked. Because according to Leviticus chapter 11... The Jews were, in, in, actually Moses listed several things that they were to detest. One of them specifically was a raven. 
In this context, it means they weren't supposed to eat the raven because it was considered an unclean bird. And so the question then becomes, why in the world would God use a raven who was, who was detested, a bird that was considered unclean, the least likeliest candidate to be used in such a miracle? And I, again, my answer may not be perfect, but here's what I think. I think God used the least likeliest resource to prove to Elijah once again that he was God all by himself and that when our back is to the corner, God's never is. That he can use anything he chooses and anything he wants. And furthermore, God did not allow Elijah to hoard up a surplus. Resources came twice a day, morning and evening. But we don't like to live like that. We love to hoard. Now, hopefully, you're not a hoarder, hoarder, to the extreme hoarder. But all of us are hoarders on some level. We want to hoard up things. We want to hoard up a freezer full of meat and food. Some people like to hoard up toilet paper, as we learned last year. That was like price of gold. Who knew that in 2020, you just had to invest in the stock market in toilet paper. You could sell it now and be a millionaire. My goodness. Freezer full of food. A bank account full of money to last several months or years. We say, you know, it's been said you should have money in your savings to last you at least six months. Resources last that long. Oh, we want all of our bills paid. Good bill of health for years to come. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But God will take you in seasons like Elijah. God put Elijah in a place where he had to daily depend on God. It was every morning, Lord, if you don't send that raven, I don't know what time the raven came. The Bible just says in the morning and in the evening. But, but every morning Elijah would get up. Maybe he had a little rock, a little altar he prayed out and said, God, unless you don't send that raven today, then I'm not going to eat. And furthermore, how in the world... Did that brook continue to supply water when there was water nowhere else? I mean, it hadn't rained for three and a half years. That was an aspect of the miracle that is often not discussed. Is That was another miracle was that there was water. And Elijah could have been like, Lord, you have to keep, you, you, you got to keep providing water in this brook. Or we don't know how big the brook was. It probably wasn't very big. It was just a brook. But it was just enough. It wasn't a huge spring. This wasn't Niagara Falls. This was a trickle. This was enough to keep him from thirsting and keep him from dying of thirst and hunger. It was enough. We do not like to live like that because that means we have to walk by faith every day. And let me tell you, God sent the resources that Elijah needed at the right time. I don't know what kind of resources or encouragement you need in this season for this particular morning, but when you need it, God will surely send it. Now, we can also know from James 5 and 17, according to the book of James, that it didn't rain for three and a half years. Elijah prayed once, and it didn't rain, and waited until God told him again to pray again. And he prayed again, and rain, the rain stopped the first time, and then it came the second time. But that means that Elijah would have been fed by ravens for over 2,000 meals. Furthermore, ravens were scavengers, feeding off of dead bodies. 
roadkill, etc. They didn't have you know, roadkill as we had it, but there were dead animals laying around. And you know, that, that's where you, you don't, you're like, Lord, I don't want to know what this is. I'm just going to eat it and fry it up or cook it up, whatever he did with it. I don't know what he did with it. I don't want to gross you out, but you get the point. This was not Ponderosa Buffet. This wasn't an all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet where you know you're getting some, some good, good stuff. <laughs> this was, Lord, whatever you bring. I had a missionary once years ago and in Sister Messer that told the story about how she was in the deep jungles of Africa witnessing to this native tribes. And, uh, and, and, she, and she said, you know, they, they considered me a special guest. And so you know, she was like, they wanted to treat me special, so they made this special meal for me. And it was fish eyes. How would you like a nice, juicy, warm bowl of fish eye soup? Again, I'm not trying to gross anybody out, but that's where you, you're going to pray over your food. <laughs> you're not going to forget to say the blessing that time. <laughs> you may even talk in tongues over it a little bit. <laughs> What were they bringing Elijah? Flesh in the morning. Furthermore, we don't know what kind of flesh it was because some animals, many of them, were considered unclean. Remember that the raven would have been a small bird. So they're going to feed on mice and other things that were dead. Mice were considered unclean. So there was a lot of animals that Elijah, I mean, Elijah's theology was being crossed. At this. And let me tell you, there are seasons that God will bring you in where God will show you that he is a lot bigger than your theology. Yeah. You don't have him all figured out. Yeah. If I do this, God is going to do this. If, if, I, if this happens, then everything is going to happen according to what I think and plan. And God's like, nope, it's not going to happen that way because guess what? I've got, I've got bigger plans. Mary wanted Jesus to come and heal Lazarus from a cold. And when she got there, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother had not died. Now, can you hear the, the judginess in her voice? If you had been here, Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, Mary, I think it was Martha, actually, oh, Martha, Martha, you just wanted me to heal him of a cold, but I've got something so much bigger in mind. Mary had a small miracle in her mind, but Jesus had a resurrection from the dead. God thinks so much bigger than us if we will only trust him in this season. And ravens were despised and unclean, and yet God chooses the despised things of this world to confound the wise. Sometimes in difficult seasons, we need to remind ourselves what Elijah learned, and that is this, he is Lord of the ravens. He's Lord of the despised things. He's Lord of the things that we don't like. He's Lord of the darkness. He's Lord of the light. In one place, uh, I think it's in the book of Isaiah, God said, you know, that I, I am Lord of the darkness. In other words, he, he said, I created the darkness. And darkness in this context means chaos. I created the chaos. Sometimes God allows it to come into our life. But he allows it to come into our life for a purpose and a reason. Elijah probably felt torn down many times during this season. He probably remembered the years, perhaps, when it was plenty, when he could go to that Chinese buffet. Maybe his faith was tested. Maybe he had doubts. 
like we often have doubts too. And maybe you felt that way as well, like God is making you weak and tearing you down and ripping you apart. What is God doing and how could he do this to me? And I've lived a good life and how could God have done this to me? But remember this, that God only tears down to build up. And he only makes us weak so that we can be strong again. And furthermore, God delayed his power in the days of Elijah. And from Elijah's perspective, again, I don't know Elijah's mindset during this season, but if it had been me, I would have been thinking, Lord, what are you doing with me right now? But really, it wasn't about him. It was about Israel. It was about a whole nation and bringing them back to a place of revival and how God was using Elijah during that season in a way that Elijah could not ever, you know, could not ever have even have begun to imagine that this was going to take into a place where he could call down fire from heaven. But before Israel was ready to receive that miracle, they had to go through a time of famine where a prophet of God would call down the rain again, pray down the rain again. And it's easy to forget that it's not about us. That God has a bigger plan and we're part of it, thank God. But it's, we're not the center of it. So God's, God delayed in the days of Elijah. And it's easy to interpret delays as denials. But the days of delays are the days of waiting and believing and trusting. And in closing, as musicians come, come. Shortly after this miracle, not, it was just a few years later, when... Elijah would come against the Syrians again. This would have been in the book of 2 Kings, right around chapter 6 or 7. And whenever Elijah comes against the Syrians, you know, the Syrians are, are after Elijah because he's a man of God, he's a prophet of God, and he's telling the king of Israel what's going to happen next and how the Syrians are planning on defeating Israel. So the Syrians gather their host and they surround the city roundabout. And the scripture says that Elijah goes out there with his servant Gehazi and his servant begins to panic because his servant is not seeing the same thing that Elijah is seeing. And the Bible says that as his servant begins to panic and he says, Alas, master, look at all these armies. And, and you know the story. Elijah just prayed and he said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Just like that. Gehazi looked round about the mountains, higher place than the Syrians would have been. And what did he see? But the same thing Elijah was already seeing, and that was the host of the Lord surrounding them. Now that's a nice miracle to talk about. And it's great to have that kind of faith where you don't even need to pray for it, you just have it. Elijah had that kind of faith. And it might be said, where did Elijah get it from? It wasn't just a bestowal of the gifts of the Spirit on that prophet. But I submit to you that the place that he got that kind of faith was in an earlier season in his life. When every day for over 2,000 meals he had to get up, pray at that same little rock and say, Lord, if you don't send the ravens today, it's not going to come. And God had, and Eli, or rather, God had to teach Elijah that he's Lord of the ravens, he's Lord of the despised things, he can use anything he wants, he can do whatever he wants, his back is never to the wall. Circumstances may go in the opposing direction, but God is never in trouble. 
And at some point during that season, Elijah started to have faith. And instead of his prayers being, oh me, oh me, oh me, his prayer started to be, oh God, oh God, oh God, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? I'm going to have faith now. And when he got to that place, then God said, okay, it's time to pray for rain again. And when he had faith for the rain, he had faith for the fire to come down just a little bit later. And when he had faith for the fire to come down, he had faith to walk out and see the host of the mountains of the Lord surrounding. And his faith began to be catching. And his servant Gehazi said, man, I'm seeing it like I've never seen it before. Let me tell you right now, you better not despise the season that you're in because right now God is building something in you that you're going to need for a later season. And God is going to use you in a way that you could never even begin to fathom or imagine just like he used Elijah. But some things don't come by the bestowal of the Spirit. they got to be growing in us. Because if God gives us a gift that's too big for us, then we fall under the weight of it and we'll fall into sin. We don't know how to handle it, so God has to grow us first. And he's got to grow our faith as we stand today. Amen. It's important also to remember that in our text, Jesus came back again to those ten disciples. The first time he came, he came for the ten. And then the next time he came, not for the ten, but for the one. He came back for the one who didn't have faith. He was literally on his way somewhere else and stopped and said, wait a second, I've got something I've got to do. And with great intent, he went across the space and time and came down to that place where the 10 were huddled together for fear or the 11 together for fear of the Jews and he came not for the not for the disciples as a whole but for that one last disciple who was struggling with his faith and you know what Thomas is not the only one who struggled with his faith there was another man named John the Baptist who lived a life that was devoted to God he prayed he fasted he was the, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament but in his last dying breath when he was put in prison getting ready to be beheaded he sent those last two disciples to tell Jesus are you really the one who should come or do we look for another and you see even great men of faith often will, 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 will quiver under the weight of the season that God puts them in and there's no sin in that Jesus did not chide John the Baptist for his lack of faith. He did not chide Thomas for his lack of believing. But instead, he encouraged him. And he went back and he he told those last two disciples, go back and tell John in prison that the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear and to the poor the gospel is preached. And I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to get resurrected on the third day. You know, John the Baptist may not have lived to see all of that but he heard it from the words of the Lord himself who would encouragement his faith. And I believe that John the Baptist went to that chopping block with faith in his heart, in victory, in his spirit. Whatever future God has for us, if we can cling to it in faith, if we can lay hold on it in faith, if we can keep believing in faith, then this season will only be for a short while. And it's not going to be too much longer, amen, where the trumpet's going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to raise again. And we will be ever with the Lord. Hallelujah. 
So there's a friend to help in your time of weakness today. Lift your hands today right now to heaven. Just call in the name of the Lord. Come on, God hasn't sent this season to destroy you. He sent it to build you. He's going to fulfill everything he said in his word. I want you to feel free to come down to the altars right now and just talk to God. Let God minister to you today.